I'm Lisa Kirby, CEO of Blackbird Strategies. Around here, we've seen a lot over the years, on Parliament Hill, on the campaign trail, in the world of public relations and elsewhere. What we have learned is that there are so many stories that need to be told, that deserve to be told. So welcome to Bird on the Wire. This is where we want to talk about those lesser heard stories. We hope to have informative, hopefully, and thoughtful discussions on the issues of the day, have a few laughs, and chat about the events affecting our society with people on the front lines of these issues. From climate change, to racial justice, to reconciliation, there are so many people advocating for change across this country. So join us as we cover it all on Bird on the Wire, and let's get right into it. Happy New Year? Yes, that's a question. It's not a statement. This week marks 10 months of lockdowns, masks, lack of hugs, and missing many of the normal things we all used to take for granted. My adult daughter is on her second layoff. Her husband is home helping her care for their son. My own son is back in Toronto where he studies university online and alone until of course I got him a pandemic puppy for Christmas. Mothers worry. My three-year-old grandson has spent nearly a third of his life with his only playmates being me and his parents. Despite opening my firm just a few months before the first lockdown, and despite moving from Toronto to Ottawa during a pandemic, we've all been relatively okay. And of course, better now that there's a puppy for my son. So many others haven't been okay. They've gotten sick. They've lost jobs. They've lost businesses, loved ones. This has been especially tough on our most vulnerable, seniors, people with housing insecurity, people who are marginalized, people dependent on our social safety net to put a roof over their head and food on the table. If anything, we have learned that we must do better. And I say that noting that we have been talking about this for decades, but this time we must, must do better. We cannot any longer let our leaders off the hook. We have to address these issues. At the beginning of the pandemic, I remember everyone saying that this was going to be the great equalizer. Well, it wasn't. We know that people who are already doing okay are doing better. We know that people who were struggling are trying really hard not to let go. And we have no choice anymore. We must force these hard conversations to be had. Why are our seniors allowed to die even as our leaders vow to protect them? Why are those of us with privilege criticizing those who rely on the social safety net? These are just a couple of questions that we have to answer. And as I'm talking to you, I can see the peace tower outside of my window. On many dark nights, to me, the peace tower has become a symbol of hope because I know that all 338 people who represent us want to get us out of the seemingly never ending loop of lockdowns and climbing case counts. Despite the difference of opinions on what that path is, we can count on a functioning government. One that while not without criticism is trying to follow the science and make sure its citizens can emotionally, physically, and financially survive. The same can't be said for our neighbors south of the border. On January 6, 2021, I woke up so happy to read on Twitter that Reverend Warnock won his Georgia race and that John Ossoff was leading in his. 
I went to work in the next room and I didn't check social media again for hours. I'm still trying to process what happened in the Capitol that terrible afternoon. And I watched the news like many of you with my mouth agape, wondering how America got here. But we know how this happened. It was one person, one person who took a advantage of already simmering tensions within America. It was the president of the United States. He spent years nurturing a following or a cult, if you will, of those who believed themselves to be disenfranchised and that Trump was their only savior. We saw what happened in Michigan in May of last year when Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer extended the stay-at-home order until May 15th. Armed rioters or domestic terrorists, take your pick, they entered the Michigan State House. Astoundingly, some of the guards there at that state house took their temperature readings before letting these terrorists into the building. They let them in. And you have to remember at this point, we were really only about six weeks into the pandemic. God, we were, we were so naive back then. And then in October, after Trump tweeted in all caps, liberate Michigan, we learned that there was an attempt to kidnap Governor Whitmer and overthrow the Michigan government. Turns out that was a practice run. So on the afternoon of January 6th, when I had been so happy earlier that day about the Georgia races, the afternoon of January 6th, what we saw was aided and abetted by Republicans who supported this president and encouraged his behavior. What we saw on January 6th was aided and abetted by law enforcement who'd rather armed riders storm the Capitol than peaceful protesters stand outside. This is the very same law enforcement who are macing and arresting and injuring those who were peacefully protesting Black Lives Matter just months earlier. The contrast is stunning. I know not everyone believes that they will see social justice in their lifetime. But it is another one of those very hard conversations that we need to have and we need to continue to have it until it becomes reality. I don't know what the answers are, but we want to be part of the solution. And I hope you listen in for those and many other discussions. Thank you for joining us at Bird on the Wire. With me today is Catherine Marshall. She's a lawyer and a columnist for the National Post. She's also a mom of young kids, and she's a close friend. Catherine's passion for advocacy extends beyond the courtroom. She has worked to advance the rights of women, combat sexual violence, domestic abuse, and gender discrimination for over a decade. In October of last year, Catherine wrote a piece about the pandemic's epidemic of violence against women an issue that she's involved in personally and within her law practice. But first, Catherine, I just want to thank you for agreeing to be our very first Bird on the Wire guest. Uh, you're taking a big chance with me, so thank you. Well, I, I love being a guinea pig, so <laughs> That's what I love best about you. I, when I opened up here, I mentioned that you have a couple of kids. You have a toddler and a school-aged child, a husband and busy career. So 10 months into this pandemic, I have to ask you, how are you doing? Um, you know, my sanity's a little frail, like most people, but um, 
I'm okay. Uh, I, I managed to hold it together. Um, <laughs> you know, I try to like bring myself small pleasures, like going, you know, getting a coffee and you know, having a bath. But you know what? Having the kids is a nice thing in that it also, um, other than they bring me joy and blah, 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 all that stuff. All the things we're supposed to say about our kids. Yeah, I know, right? Fulfilled, blah, blah, blah. It <laughs> forces me to just keep moving. You know, I really just can't stop because I have to look after them. You know, I can't stop and like wallow in, on my couch because this whole situation sucks. Um, I have to keep moving for them. And like, you know what? They they just, they always have smiles on their faces and they're always excited about life. And it's a nice distraction actually from the, the gloom and doom that's out there. Well, I, I adore your kids and I look forward to a day where I can come over again and spoil them rotten. Yes, we're all very look, much looking forward <laughs> to that. And maybe maybe I can uh, utilize your babysitting services at some point. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I'm as, as a grandma, I'm an excellent babysitter, if I do say so myself. My daughter might disagree. Yes, and, and you know what? You have free reign to just give them as much sugar as you want. Um, as long as you put them to bed. <laughs> I'm a cool mom. Excellent. Awesome. So I want to talk a little bit about the column you wrote for the National Post. Uh, in that column, you mentioned several women who've been murdered by their partners. Mm -hmm. a, a woman who was killed in her family home in Mississauga, another killed in her Hamilton apartment, and a young woman whose body was found in a burned out vehicle uh, very close to where I used to live in the Okanagan. So leaving aside the pandemic for a moment, mm -hmm. how big of a problem is domestic abuse in general? Domestic abuse and, and homicide of a domestic nature is a really large problem in Canada. It's one of the, the few areas of violent crime that actually has not trended downwards over the years. It has gone up. And um, it's a problem in every community. It's a problem in every socioeconomic demographic. It doesn't discriminate, you know, it's, it affects every single town and city in this country. And, uh, you know, before the pandemic, it was bad, but, you know, since the pandemic has started, it has just become, like I said in my column, an epidemic. Well, exactly. You know, with the global pandemic, we have lockdowns, we have stay at home orders, resources might be more scarce, you know, money might be tighter, and it appears that women are more vulnerable than ever. Tell me a little bit about Darian Haley Henderson-Bellman, who was shot to death and her boyfriend was charged in that killing. That was a case that really actually, it struck home for me a lot because when I read about it, I mean, first of all, she she's around the same age as me and she just looks like you're, you know, the girl next door, like she could be anyone, she could be anyone that we know. And what happened to her uh, was that she had a, you know, an intimate partner, and they had this on and off relationship. And her partner had four no contact orders that were against him. And they were continually breached. He had illegal firearm charges, he had been released on bail. And he ended up shooting and, and killing her. And that is a case that is so 100% preventable because of the fact that this is perpetrator that is clearly violent. 
clearly has escalating, you know, harassment type behavior towards her. And the justice system is aware of that, yet he's still allowed to be on the street. And it really underscores the fact that our criminal justice system as a whole doesn't adequately deal with domestic violence at all. And, you know, a lot of these cases like domestic homicide, they're, they are preventable once you actually look at the back history of them because you there's usually a very long pattern of escalating type behavior you know cops are called you know neighbors report things there you know no contact orders and then it just hits a, a head and it's a very sad thing what i don't understand is so her ex had four no contact orders so that would have been you know four times in front of the courts to get him to leave her alone. How, how is it that you can get to four no contact orders without any consequences? You know, that's a, a very good question. Um, you know, the, he, he was somehow, despite all this, released from custody with just a GPS bracelet. And, um, you know, I fundamentally believe that, you know, these dangerous men who are clearly known by the justice sets, you know, system as being dangerous need to be behind bars. And if you breach a no contact order once, you know, you shouldn't get a chance to breach it again. One of the problems in that case, and this is very common in a lot of domestic violence cases, was that in, in that case, I understand that actually in some of the instances of the no contact order being breached, that Darian Haley Henderson Bellman and the perpetrator were actually found together. So um, what often happens, um, and people don't really understand this until they really understand what domestic violence is all about, is that the, the victim is often the one to even kind of reach out or voluntarily make contact with their abuser. And I don't know the specifics of what happened in Darian's case about that, but it's very common. And the reason why it's common, of course, is that there is a very strong, controlling, threatening dynamic that exists in the relationship where the, the abuser manages to instill so much fear in, in his victim that she feels the only way to placate him and make herself and her family and her loved ones safe is by giving in to the little things that he demands. Like maybe he demands that, you know, she just meet up with him once and have a, a talk, or maybe he demands that she have a phone call with him. And um, at first glance, some people might say, well, you know, it's her fault. Like she, she could have just, you know, shut the door on him and, and got him out of her life forever. But what is always really the case is that these abusers spend so much time harassing and stalking their victims and creating just this, this horrible state of fear. And one of the things I address in my column um, is that the, the, the threshold for what it takes for the police to charge someone with criminal harassment is far too high. So in Darian's case, like he, he was stalking her, he was showing up at her home. In a lot of these cases, like the, the abuser is contacting the victim's employer, friends, family, calling them incessantly, emailing them, turning up at their house. And unless there's a direct kind of threat, an actual verbal or written threat against the, the woman's life, you know, the police kind of have their hands tied because that's how high the threshold is for criminal harassment. So do we need to change that? 
absolutely, we need to change that. You know, the definition of criminal harassment and the, the criminal code, I think, should be expanded to explicitly include all forms of harassing behavior, not just conduct that causes fear for personal safety. It should include, you know, harassing behavior that cause, causes someone to feel psychologically unsafe, financially unsafe. And that would cover behavior that a lot of these abusers often engage in, which is docking on the on social media, incessantly contacting family and friends, posting, you know, abusive things online, um, making, you know, email threats, things that they do that create this horrible state of fear in the victim but don't actually cross the threshold of I'm coming to your house and I'm going to kill you. Right. Cause I, I highly doubt that they really announced themselves like that. No. And I, I know because I've dealt with the police on, on this, that it takes a very explicit threat of bodily physical harm in order for, you know, the police to intervene. And if you talk to most like domestic violence and abuse victims, they, you know, will say, well, no, no, I, he didn't threaten to kill me, but here, here's all the, you know, hundreds of things that he did to make me feel unsafe. And, and that is at the core of what domestic violence is all about, is about control and um, controlling people with fear. And in, in some cases, domestic violence doesn't include physical violence. It can include psychological abuse, emotional abuse, financial abuse. Like it's very common in some of these cases for the abuser to financially cut off their victim. You know, a lot of times um, these, you know, people in these relationships, like the woman doesn't have any, you know, financial independence. So, you know, there's a range of, of very toxic, abusive behavior that is that does not always involve physical violence. When when I was reading your article, what one of the things that jumped out at me was the comment from the Canadian Femicide Observatory for Justice and Accountability, and that they say the most dangerous time for a woman is when she's trying to leave her abuser. So yeah. how, how do we keep women safer? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely two times in a woman's life where it's the most dangerous. And yeah, when she's trying to leave her abuser is one of them. And when she's pregnant is the second one. And so a lot of cases of domestic homicide occur during the period of time when the woman is trying to physically leave or is pregnant. And the reason is those are two very big triggering events that can really trigger an abuser. The question of how to keep these women safe in those circumstances is so, it's so complicated because one of the things that is very difficult is number one, getting an abuser to leave a household, right? Because in, in Canada, if someone owns a house, owns a property, the police actually have no authority to tell that person to leave. So what usually ends up having to happen is that the female has to be the one to leave. And the way that we can all make it safer for victims of abuse to leave is to create support um, that helps them leave. And there's an organization called Shelter Movers that I love. I've worked with them in the past. And what they do is they physically will like turn up at your your dwelling and like in the cloak of night, you know, you know, if you're when your partner's away, hopefully, you know, if they're away on the weekend or whatever, they will literally come with a moving truck 
pack up all your belongings and take you to a safe haven. Because like the physical act of actually moving is so difficult. So what ends up happening a lot of times is these, uh, you know, women are trying to leave the abusive relationship, but aren't able to actually physically leave, you know, so they're stuck in the same dwelling. And that is really when the danger becomes red hot, you know, because they're there, they're there together. And people don't really realize or conceptualize always that just like the physical and financial act of leaving is, is humongous. Like number one, where are you going to go? Number two, you know, how do you have financial resources to physically get out? So yeah, investing in resources to help people actually leave is really important. And then shelters and, and community organizations that provide services and shelter to, to women and their children, right? Women are not going to leave their children behind. Mm -hmm. um, really, really important. And I think the more we talk about it out in the open, the more that we advocate for change, uh, that's when it's going to come. So I really thank you for being one of those advocates and talking to me a little bit about it. And if you're a woman who is listening to this, please reach out to whomever you can to seek help, whether it's shelter movers in Toronto or other organizations, wherever you are, or even if it's a couple of good friends that you feel comfortable in confiding in, just so you feel less alone. I think that's, at this point, one of the best things that we can do is to encourage women uh, that they have alternatives. They have other abilities to have a better life, even though it might not feel like it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And so this might be a bit of an awkward transition, but... Um, <laughs> So moving away from that conversation, just as we're wrapping up here, Catherine, for people who don't know, is a political junkie like myself. We belong to different parties yeah. Uh, yeah. and we have lively and spirited political conversations as Catherine's a conservative and I'm a liberal. Uh, so just to, to close this out, I have to ask, as 2021 seems to be a dumpster fire already, good looking back at 2020 and what a crazy year it was politically and otherwise what was the very best of politics in 2020 do you think you know there was so little that was good <laughs> about politics in 2020 but a shining moment I mean definitely as corny as it sounds I almost teared up when Kamala Harris won because like to see a strong woman of color you know in that position as vice president I mean it was amazing and, and I love that she's like an unapologetic badass who also wears like awesome shoes if I dare say so myself <laughs> can I tell you what there was a, a photo of Kamala Harris so as most people know I'm a grandmother I'm so I'm a woman in my 50s and my casual business attire is skinny jeans a blazer and black chucks and I saw a photo of her wearing the exact same outfit as she was uh, coming off a plane to do some sort of event. And it was like, I like this woman. Uh, I liked her even before that, but I, I just got a kick out of that, that she all over the place is breaking down barriers and challenging norms. So that, that I think to me also was a huge moment of 2020. But also one of the things on Canadian soil that I liked a lot at the beginning of the pandemic uh, that's not so much the case anymore. At the beginning of the pandemic, what I really liked is how people were kind of dropping their partisan shields. What we saw was 
politicals of all stripes getting along. It was like when Doug Ford, the premier of Ontario, stood up and said uh, that Christian Freeland, who happens to be the finance minister and the deputy prime minister of Canada, that they're best friends, you know, that they talk all the time. And I think Minister Freeland actually said that she considers uh, the premier to be almost like a therapist for her. I mean, it's very normal, you know, it's very normal, uh, you know, behind doors. I have like that collegiality and like, I mean, I have so many friends at, in different political parties as do you. And like, it, it is normal. Like a lot of the MPs like are socially like engaging each other from different sides of the bench. So, you know, I think it would be actually really nice if like the public saw more of that, not just during a pandemic, you know, it would, I think, restore some of the faith and trust that people should have in our political uh, actors. Couldn't agree more so now that we've done the very best what was the very worst i mean probably I'm, the events of the past few days like, i was just gonna say i'm holding you to 2020 oh it's 2020 yeah. 2020 oh, 2021 oh. we already know what what <laughs> where everything went bad <laughs> you know uh, look like on a yeah on like a personal level you know um you know, it was a weird kind of 2020 was like a weird political year for me, because obviously I was very involved with like the Andrew Shear, you know, campaign. And, you know, my husband ran his leadership and his his campaign and the Shears are good friends and, and they're good people. And I, you know, there was a lot of sadness for me kind of seeing the way that things ended for him. I think for me, in terms of the very worst of politics in in America, of course, was the rise of anti-Semitism and the rise of racial, racial injustice. And it was just disheartening to see. And unfortunately, what I see too is that it's clearly coming north of the border and we're seeing it more and more in our, in our discourse and rhetoric. And I'm, I'm hoping that for 2021, now that people have seen the end result of what happened when you stoke those fires, when you, when you go after a base that no one should be seeking. I'm, I'm hopeful for 2021 that people will realize that this is where we do not want to go as a country. The tone and the direction that politics has taken over the past few years, it's, it's just become so polarized and so visceral. And there seems to be like a complete erosion of trust that people have not only in politicians, but like the media. And um, I don't know if it's going to get worse before it gets better or if we've kind of seen the peak of that. But like, it's very off-putting and, you know, it definitely wasn't like this even like five years ago. Right. So, yeah, you know, and then with the pandemic as like the backdrop, you know, I think tensions are, are just going to flare even more because like people are angry. So, Catherine, thank you so much for coming on Bird on the Wire. I'm so happy to have you as my first guest. And as we were talking about politics, what I was thinking about is we need to find a new Democrat and kind of do our own little panel. I don't think people realize that, you know, when they hear that partisans are friends with other parties, they think that we must just ignore issues. And the fact is we don't No. Like, how many times have you and I sat back with a bottle of wine and debated current political issues, both of us believing the other one is totally wrong, but we have a really good time doing it. And I think the, 
end end of the day, people need to understand that despite disagreeing with someone politically, it doesn't mean that they're a bad person. Exactly, exactly. And that like, I mean, really the thing that I've always loved about politics and the thing that really drew me to it when I was 17, 18 years old was I just, I'm a curious person and I love talking and thinking about ideas and debating. Totally agree. So let's leave it there. And next time we'll come back and we'll find a new Democrat and we will we will solve the world's problems. We will. Over All right. Take care. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> have to have the wine. Take care, yeah. Catherine. I'll talk to you okay. soon. Hey, it's Lisa. And I wanted to, on this inaugural podcast of Bird on the Wire, I wanted to introduce to you the people behind the scenes, the people that make me look good, and uh, the people who I rely on quite a bit, both work-wise and emotionally. They've become friends, and during a pandemic, they're not just my staff, they're my friends and my colleagues, and I wanted to introduce you to Zach Babbins and hey. Hartley Witten. Hello. So these two guys, uh, how they came to be, so when I started Blackbird- Well, you'll have to ask my mother about that one. <laughs> oh yeah, Zach's mom, she sent me Facebook messages before, which I think is actually kind of cool. I would probably do it, but my children would kill me. <laughs> so how, how these guys came to me, uh, so you already know that I started a business in the middle of a pandemic or right before a pandemic. And to my great astonishment, I started to need help. I couldn't do the work alone anymore. And the first person I turned to was my friend, Zach. And I asked him if he'd be interested in helping me out a little bit. And of course the answer was yes. I came on with a, with a bit of a contract work uh, to pick up some odds and ends and then work keep, kept coming in and you, you kept me on and you haven't gotten tired of me yet. So I'm pretty grateful for that. And I'm pretty grateful <laughs> that you haven't gotten tired of me yet. And then we decided we needed to bring someone else on. And one of the CVs that stood out was Hartley's. Zach was like, oh yeah, we know each other. We work together. <laughs> and then that, that was half a lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, work, work together, played together. I don't think yeah. it really matters. So that kind of solidified the deal for me. Because again, you know, Zach, you're in Toronto. Hartley, you're in Ottawa down I'm the sorry. street from me. I can probably see you if you stepped outside. But for me, because you guys had a pre-established friendship, I just thought this is a really good opportunity to bring Hartley in and uh, welcome. And thank you both. You both have been so helpful to me, both on a personal and a professional level. Yeah, it's great to note that uh, Zach can never get rid of me. You know, I see him on hours, I see him off hours, I see him in the hockey pool. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure yeah. the hockey pool will come up on the podcast some week. The hockey pool is going to come up and uh, and some other group chats. Yeah. <laughs> so what I want you to do, aside from introducing you guys so that people know who you are and when you pop up on here every once in a while, it's going to be uh, like old friends coming home. I wanted to, because all of us play for the same team, we all kind of thought about it and we, what topic could we talk about where it's kind of an equal opportunity for being upset with people. So we wanted to talk a little bit about um, politicians traveling over the holidays. Yeah. And I think 
the first one, if I recall, was the most infamous one, which was Rod Phillips. For good reason. Yeah. yeah. yeah oh, the, good old the, Rod. The Minister of Finance for the province of Ontario, the largest province in this country, after telling everyone, or his government telling everyone not to travel, after the federal government telling everyone not to travel, Mr. Phillips decided that he should go to St. Bart's for the holidays. How did that guy, that make you feel? Not just as partisans, but as just people who've been stuck in your condos or your homes for 10 months now. Well, I, I was sitting, I was sitting there and I said, Rod, what are you doing here? Didn't let him, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will also, I, I will also give $5 to any Canadian political podcast that doesn't make that joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, I clearly pay Hartley time. too well. So. <laughs> I'm not paid for my but humor. I think, so, then, <laughs> so then what we saw then was like over the next period of what, 24 to 72 mm -hmm. hours, it was like this avalanche of politicians who've been yeah. saying one thing and doing another. And it was just, it was, it was kind of like, I, I sat here looking at my phone, waiting for the next one, waiting for the next mm -hmm. one, waiting for the next one. And there was a few, I think Alberta, mm -hmm. but Quebec clearly they were not told to stay home. Yeah. Oh, look, it's, it, it was infuriating on so many levels, but there was just no excuse. I mean, even I, I have some sympathy and, and in my heart, I make a distinction for a number of the politicians who went to see, you know, dying family or take care of estate issues or anything like that. I really do feel for them, but there are people who for the last almost a year now have not been able to do that and have been told not to do that. And you still did anyways. So there's a few of them that, that did the, did the wrong thing for sympathetic reasons. And I think that most of them were punished appropriately. They, you know, they lost certain roles. They lost their, um, you know, their critic roles or parliamentary secretaries, they lost those roles. And I think that was an appropriate punishment for those. Now, the ones who just went on vacation because, because I mean, maybe they thought it would be cheaper to go when no one else was going. Uh, maybe they could get a discount. But well, and now you're helping them do their jobs, coming up with all these excuses. So Hartley, as someone who does comms, who's, Look, who's I love great. a good discount, but sorry, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, Hartley, when you looked at, so one of the things that jumped out at me is when all of these politicians started making statements mm -hmm. is that I think almost all of them put a line in their statement saying that it was essential that they traveled. And I just lost my mind on that. Like, honestly, like, who is the arbiter of essential? It is not the person who is writing this statement. So how would you have, have written that, Hartley? How would you have, you know, would it just been, I fucked up, I'm sorry? Well, I think that, I think that that's what we, we come to expect in terms of damage, damage control in these sorts of situations is you want to put it to bed as quickly as possible. And you want to, you want to cover your bases and just say that you're sorry and you move on and try and put the issue to rest as quickly as possible um but uh, i think that everyone really wanted to do that you know well we can see um some of our favorite liberals on twitter were making sure that everyone knew that they were indeed in a snowbank all winter like the rest of us um, of course, <laughs> that we was a, we, fun too 
we have to shout out uh, Mark Garrison, uh, a leader on liberal Twitter, um, <laughs> who made sure that we knew he was sledding in Kingston. And uh, I think those those were the winners on Twitter that day. Yeah, yeah, there was definitely, you know, what what struck me too is then then when things started dying down, the liberals came out and they said, they listed actually, I think it was five MPs who over the course of the pandemic had to travel. So they proactively disclosed once it became uh, an issue within Canadian media. And then we didn't really hear much from the Tories from their caucus because Nikki Ashton had already at that point been stripped of her critics roles. Mm -hmm. She is one of those sympathetic uh, people. I think she's a fantastic MP, by the way. Um, but then we saw, we heard nothing but crickets from the Tories until there was that video of Senator Platt. So for those of you who don't know, Senator Platt is the leader of the opposition in the Senate. He's not just a senator. He is a leader of this, the opposition in the Senate, which means he's part of the Conservative caucus. So this clown decided to film a Christmas video of himself in front of his tree talking about how hard everything is for people and how they need to stay home. Well, then it turns out he then got on a plane and went on a vacation. It's, I think it's, that was the tipping point. Yeah, it, it's hypocrisy. It's gross. It's lying. It's it's bald face lies that I think really, really infuriated a lot of people, especially with him, with uh, with former Minister Phillips, because he he went on a photo shoot. Must have been before he left, visiting a dozen businesses for their you know twelve days of small business wearing the same clothes to every single business <laughs> so if you're not if you're if you're paying attention to his twitter feed before he got caught you see him wearing the same clothes for 12 days so yeah i think i think it's the bald face lying that that really infuriated a lot of people myself included but i think it's also important to realize that the, the conservative senator that was on vacation he wasn't just a, another senator as we say in this modern senate he was he was a whipped conservative member uh who speaks to aaron o'toole um and is in touch with him and does does coordination with him this isn't just like a, you know an appointee of justin trudeau and the government this is a a member of the conservative party who toes the line and that and that makes a difference i think yeah and aaron o'toole on that issue was crickets you know, there was there was no comment about Senator Platt. Um, it was almost like they were pretending he doesn't belong to them, mm -hmm. uh, which is untrue. And then, of course, you also have the other issue where people were were on this for a while. But I think the, the what's happened in the United States has kind of moved everyone off of this. Was Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, learned that uh, Minister, well then Minister Phillips, was in St. Bart's and didn't call him home until. The media found out yeah the i'm only upset because i got caught kind of um kind of strategy has <sighs> i have yet to see a a iteration of that strategy that has ever worked in any way shape or form in any public relations campaign and the NDP really, I think, should be commended for how fast they got out on that. They wanted to, when they saw this happen, they knew they had to act. And I think they acted even swifter than the government. So we can give them mm -hmm. a, a round of applause for that. Yeah. yeah, no, totally. They they did the right thing, even if it was a hard decision. And yeah. I, I, I figured that Nikki, I mean, it was weird, though, because then I started seeing all these conspiracies on on 
on Twitter about how this was all about leadership and she was only being punished because she she contested the leadership of Jugmeet Singh because she wanted to be leader herself. And it's like, wow, people have way too much time on their hands. I, 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 I will congratulate and commend Jagmeet Singh on his decisive action there. And I will, we might have to cut this, but I will say it's his most decisive action he's taken since becoming leader of the party. <laughs> we don't have to cut that. I think a lot of people would, would agree with you. Um, yeah, they've been. I think if I want to be single, we should keep that in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get involved in your in your uh, your home dispute there. <laughs> but so, anyways, uh, yeah, I think fundamentally the reason why this all you know went away was because bigger events took hold. Yeah. So, anyways, so thank you, uh, Zach and Hartley. Thank you to everyone who is listening. Uh, you can listen to us wherever fine podcasts are found. Please follow us on Spotify or subscribe to Apple Podcasts. And we hope to be uh, speaking with you each week of this year. And as we have more and more time since we can't leave our homes, maybe a bit more than that. So thanks, guys. And thanks, everyone. Bird on the Wire is hosted and executive produced by Lisa Kirby, CEO of Blackbird Strategies. Zach Babbins and Hartley Witten are associate producers. Artwork and music by Zach Babbins and engineered and edited by Hartley Witten. From government relations to public relations and everything in between, Blackbird Strategies is here to help your business, association, or First Nation advocate for change. Contact Blackbird Strategies today to learn how we can help you get the job done. Thanks for listening.